If you live long enough in this world, you will be promised to eventually encounter impossible situations. You will live through trials and challenges and hardships and afflictions and losses and setbacks and discouragements. And many of those, you will feel utterly powerless to do anything to change your circumstances. And maybe that's where some of us find ourselves this morning. We're facing challenges that seem impossible. And you find yourself fearful and doubtful. Maybe you're fearful and doubtful that the Lord cares or the Lord loves you at all. Well, as we've been slowly working our way through the gospel according to Luke, what we found over and over again, especially in chapter eight, is we've encountered not only Christ's omnipotent love for sinners, but we've seen time and time again his omnipotent, almighty love for sinners who find themselves in impossible situations. And what we found again and again is that what is impossible with man is possible with the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning in our passage, before we go to the Lord's Supper together, we're going to meet two people who are different and yet both share a similar dilemma. They are in impossible situations. And what we find is that once again, the Lord Jesus Christ guides sinners in his love from fear to faith. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Luke chapter eight. We're going to be looking at verse 40 down to verse 56. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this on page 866. And if you're not used to looking at a Bible, when I say Luke 8, that's the big number, 8. And then the sentence numbers are the verse numbers. That's the little number 40. Big number 8, little number 40. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue and falling at Jesus's feet, he implored him to come to his house for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, and could, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowds are surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and fell down before him, declared in the presence of all the people 
why she had touched him and how she had immediately been healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, she allowed no one, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James, and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. My prayer for each one of us this morning is that the Lord Jesus would shepherd our hearts by his love from fear to faith. So you'll notice our passage begins there in verse 40 with Jesus returning. We've noticed in our passage, just in the context, Jesus is returning to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, also known as Lake Gennesaret. He's left the the eastern part where there were more Gentiles. That's where we were last week. He's traveled with his disciples by boat. Now he's on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. You'll notice there in this more Jewish region, we're told they were all waiting for him. Obviously, Jesus has become a major attraction. All of his mighty miracles, the news of that had gone forth and people were waiting for him to get there. We're introduced right there in verse 41 to a man named Jairus. We're told that he was a ruler of the synagogue, one of the rulers. We've seen this before in Luke's gospel, but synagogues, you'll find nothing about synagogues in the Old Testament. Synagogues arose after the return of the exile. Jews who were coming back from Babylon needed a place to meet together, to read God's word, hear God's word, pray God's word, and have someone to preach God's word. And so synagogues grew up throughout the Mediterranean region, all the way down into Israel. And this was clearly a prominent man because he was a leader. He was a ruler in one of the local synagogues. If you ever go to Israel, they're finding first century synagogues all the time. There's one in a place called Magdala that just was discovered a few years ago. So Jairus sees Jesus and notice what he does. This leader in the community sees the Lord and just falls down before him on his on his knees, falls down at Jesus's feet and he begins to beg. He implores Jesus. Do you see that? Death brings this man to his to his knees. What is he begging Jesus for? Well, he says he's begging because his girl His little girl, his daughter, is very sick. She's at death's door. So she's not in intensive care. She's in hospice. 
And Luke tells us that she's only 12 years old, verse 42. But she's dying. And Dr. Luke tells us one other heartbreaking detail. She's Jairus' only daughter. Do you see that? Just like the widow at Nain, she lost her only son. It's his only daughter. So she's not just his little girl, she's his only little girl. Now, clearly Jairus had heard about Jesus. We're not told how, but something of Jesus's ministry had gone out. He'd heard about what he'd been doing in Capernaum, his acts of healing. And so he comes to Jesus and says, my baby girl is dying. Mark tells us one little detail. Jairus says to Jesus, come and lay your hands on her and she will be made well. He believes that Jesus can heal his daughter even in this dire situation. So Jesus goes with Jairus and this great crowd of people who were there. He's following along. Jairus is leading them to his house. And Jesus is being pressed on by the crowd. Lots of people pressing in to get close to Jesus. Now you can imagine, put yourself in Jairus' shoes. There's a crowd between the Lord and your daughter who's on her deathbed. You can imagine Jairus is wanting people to move so they can hightail it to, her daughter, to his daughter's bedside. And it's a, precisely at this moment when his daughter's life hangs in the balance, Luke introduces us to another character, another person. It's this woman. You see that verse 43? Luke introduces us to a very sick woman who's also in a desperate and impossible situation. Luke tells us that she's had a difficult affliction for over a decade. We're not told her name. Did you notice that? She's not given a name, but we're told by Dr. Luke that she has a discharge of blood. Your Bible may say a hemorrhage. And notice this has lasted for 12 years. As long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. That's how long she's been dealing with this affliction. In Mark's account, he refers to this as a disease. There's some, there's some physical ailment that's causing this bleeding, constant bleeding for 12 years. Now notice, Luke gives us a few more details. Notice Luke draws attention to the steep financial burden this woman has faced. Did you see that? So look at your Bibles. Though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. That's a humble statement from Dr. Luke, right? All the doctors have failed her. That's what Luke's telling us. And notice she has spent, I'm sure some of us can relate to high medical bills. She's literally spent everything she had on her medical bills. And she's not any better. In fact, Mark tells us in his account, she's actually gotten worse. Mark chapter five, verse 26. She's destitute, she's got nothing left, but we need to note something else. She, she didn't have a physical suffering and financial issue, suffering. There's also social suffering that she's going through. If you've read your Old Testament, especially the book of Leviticus, you'll know that this particular illness, this particular physical ailment, according to Old Testament law, made a woman ceremonially unclean. 
according to Leviticus 15. So this woman could not go to corporate worship. She couldn't go to to the temple until her illness was gone. So she's basically been under a worship quarantine for 12 years. Some of you didn't like having a quarantine, right? Well, imagine for 12 years, not 12 months, 12 years. She's basically like a leper. She's untouchable. She couldn't be around other people. She physically couldn't make contact with other people, risk contaminating them and making them ceremonially unclean. Now, some of us know what it means to go through chronic illness. And one of the things when you talk to those who are suffering with chronic illness is just a desperate sense of isolation. There's a sense of just being alone in your suffering. No one can relate to what you're going through. And I think that this is what this woman's felt for 12 years. She's alienated. She's an outcast. She has to avoid physical contact with her family members for a decade. I mean, she, it's likely she hasn't been embraced by her family in 12 years. Maybe through social distancing and just the pandemic, some of you probably have a taste of this. Well, this woman is suffering physically, financially, and socially. And she's had to endure a kind of shame and disgrace of being an outcast. When people saw this woman, they crossed over to the other side. She was someone who you avoided. But she's desperate. So she, she draws near to Jesus because she's heard, like, like Jairus, she's heard about Jesus. She's heard that he can, he can make anyone clean. And we're told by Luke that she comes to Jesus from behind. Perhaps she did feel a sense of shame. She didn't want to directly approach Jesus. That would break the law. So she's approaching him from behind. And we're told that she's pursuing him. And she, verse 44, she comes up behind Jesus and touches the fringe of his garment. And immediately, we're told by Luke, immediately the discharge of blood ceased. She just, she understood, she believed if I can just touch him, his garments, I'll be healed. And we're told right there in verse 45, Jesus asked the question, who touched me? Now you get the sense from reading it that she wanted to touch Jesus, get healed, and then kind of slip off anonymously. That's the sense. But Jesus is having nothing to do with that, right? Who touched me? Peter's looking and like, Lord, what are you talking about? A lot of people are touching you, right? There's crowds pressing in on you. And Matthew, in his account, you start, brothers and sisters, if you don't own a parallel Bible of the Gospels, you should get one. You can find one on the internet for free. When you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, you find these little details. We're told by Matthew, at this point, after Jesus says, who touched me? We're told by Matthew, 922, Jesus turns around She's behind him. He turns around. He looks directly at the woman. This is the last thing she wanted to know, right? We're told in verse 47, and the woman saw that she was not hidden anymore. 
And she comes trembling. What a fearful word. She comes trembling before the Lord Jesus. Falls down before him and declares in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. She wanted to remain anonymous, but she comes trembling just like Jairus does and falls down in front of Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question real quick. Why was she so afraid? She was afraid, trembled after she was healed. Did you notice that? She was healed and then she was afraid. Now, you might think, well, she was afraid because of the crowd. She was afraid because of what she did. She was afraid of the, maybe what the people were going to say about her. We don't have to wonder. Mark tells us in the gospel of Mark, the woman knowing what had just happened to her came in fear and trembling. Just like the disciples were more afraid after the calming of the sea, this woman was frightened after she received healing because she knew that she was in the presence of a holy one, the holy one, who can make sinners clean. And so she falls down before Jesus. She testifies in the presence of everyone what she has experienced. I mean, think about this for a minute. You might ask a question, why was Jesus so desirous of, of getting her to testify? Because think about this, socially, if she had just slipped off by herself, no one would have known what had happened. But Jesus loves her and wants her to, wants the people around her to know that she's been made clean, that she's been healed. She's been alone for 12 years and no one can help her, but Jesus has done what is impossible. And now this outcast, this outsider, This woman with a shameful condition is now publicly bearing witness to the whole crowd how great and glorious Jesus is. That's wonderful. And did you know that this woman who has not been named in the story is given a name? Did you you see it? Verse 48. What does Jesus call her? Don't look at me. Look at your Bibles. And he said to her, Daughter. Isn't that beautiful? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jesus, in front of the whole crowd, looking directly at this woman who had lived in shame for 12 years. And the only time in all the Gospels that he addresses someone as daughter. He calls this woman daughter. She's no longer unclean. She's welcomed. She's no longer nameless. She's welcomed as a daughter in the family of God. Jesus is essentially welcoming her into his family. I love that. I've mentioned this last time. That verb made made you well. You can be rendered as saved. Luke uses that word interchangeably. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So just think about this for a minute. 
She arrived in the crowd in torment. Jesus sends her away in peace. She arrived afflicted. Jesus sends her away healed. She arrived unclean. Jesus sends her away clean. She arrived nameless. And she leaves as a beloved daughter with a wonderful story to tell the world. Now, friend, all of us in this room can relate to this in one level. We all have needs and problems that we cannot face. We can't meet them. We can't overcome them. We have besetting sins, each one of us. We have broken relationships that we can't fix. We have temptations. We have shameful secrets that we don't want anybody to know. But this passage reminds us that when all hope is lost, when everyone else around us has utterly let us down, when all of our support is gone, and when we have no resources left, there is one who is willing and ready and able to save us. The Lord Jesus Christ, he extends his love and mercy to those who are at their wits end. And by his gracious power, he transforms this woman with a touch. He transforms this woman who is in this impossible situation. And he, by his love, he guides her from fear and trembling to faith. Now, we left Jairus just hanging there, right? What's he doing? Now, you can imagine he's sitting there. I mean, we're not told that he's tapping his feet, but you can imagine as excited he is for this woman. He's likely thinking, can we just get the show on the road? Like, let's go. Maybe he's saying, Jesus, hurry up. I'm not just speculating because of verse 49. I I think he was probably kind of harassing Jesus a little bit. Let's go. Because it says, verse 49, he gets the dreadful news from his, from, his, from his home. Quote, verse 49, your daughter is dead. Notice this, do not trouble, don't harass the teacher anymore. So again, put yourself in, in Jairus' sandals, right? He's been told that his daughter, his only daughter, his baby girl is dead. Twelve short years. He doesn't even have time to process this news when Jesus says, don't fear, only believe, and she will be well. Same verb as earlier, she will be saved. Verse 50. And so what does he do? How how does he walk with this grieving father? Verse 51, we're told Jesus brings his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and the mom and the dad of the girl who's died, they, 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 they arrive at the house. There's all kinds of, Matthew tells us there's a flute player. There's dirging going on. Everyone's weeping. Everyone's wailing. Everyone's mourning. And they go in to where the child lies dead. And that's when Jesus gives another shocking command. Do not weep. Then he gives the reason. 
for she's not dead, but sleeping. Now, children, uh, when you read these words, you got to remember how Jesus often speaks about death. In the Gospels, Jesus often speaks about death in terms of sleeping. You remember the story about Lazarus? Remember when Lazarus died? Jesus said the same thing. Jesus said, Lazarus is not dead. He's sleeping. We're going to go wake him up. Now, Jesus is using that same language here. And so as far as this girl, she was indeed dead. But according to Jesus, as far as he was concerned, she was only asleep. But notice how those present respond to Jesus. Verse 53, we're told they laughed. They laughed at him. Because they knew that the girl was dead. But in spite of this laughter, in spite of this scoffing, maybe the words that, maybe the words that Jesus had told Jairus were still ringing in his ears. Don't, don't fear, only believe, and she'll be saved. Verse 54, but taking her by the hand, Jesus calls out, child, arise. Mark tells us that Jesus said it in Aramaic, Talitha kumi, little girl, child, It's time to get up, little one. It's the kind of phrase that you would say to your daughter or your your son in the morning when they're getting out of bed. It's time to get up, little one. Wake up, child. Verse 55, and her spirit returned. That's how you know she was dead. When you die, your spirit leaves your body. We're told here her spirit returns and she got up at once. Verse 55, And he directed that something should be given her to eat. That's always struck me as funny for some reason, right? Give her a snack. (laughs) Give her a snack. She deserves a snack at this point, right? She's been through a lot. Give her a snack. Jesus is so loving, right? And this 12-year-old girl was dead. And then what follows, as you can imagine, is utter astonishment. Verse 56, her parents were amazed. They were astounded. They were shocked. But then Jesus says, don't tell anybody what happened. Now, again, these kind of commands strike us as bizarre. Um, The people in the community are going to know that something happened and that Jesus did something because she was dead. They were mourning. They knew that she was dead. And they're going to see the little girl again. So what is Jesus What are we supposed to take away from that forbidding the parents to say anything? Well, what we can say is simply this. Throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus is on his own divine timetable. And he knows when he will reveal himself in all of his glory. And for whatever, in his own wisdom, he he understands that his schedule requires them not to say anything. The time to tell everyone what happened will come later. Now, what are we supposed to make of this? There, there's a, a couple implications that I want to draw your attention to as we prepare to go to the supper together. First, first implication is that I want you to notice that by his love, by his love, the Lord Jesus serves all kinds of sinners. By his love, Jesus serves all kinds of of sinners. You'll notice in in this passage, we meet two people that are nearly opposite in every way. Did you notice that? Jairus and this unnamed woman. 
Jairus is a male who enjoys a high level of social status in the community. Twice we're told in the passage he's a ruler. He's important. He's a somebody. On the other hand, you have this unnamed woman who's literally a nobody. She's not even named. We know nothing about her except that she's a woman. In the first century, women were looked looked at as kind of second class citizens. Jairus is on top. She's on the bottom. Jairus is an insider. She's an outsider. She's an outcast. She's unclean. And yet, because the Lord Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost, he loves and serves both. He patiently and tenderly shows concern and care for Jairus and for this unnamed woman. Jesus does the impossible for them both. And so let me ask you, Christian, when you look at people that are different from you, do you find yourself drawn to serve and love only people who look like you or dress like you or talk like you? We see time and time again, the Lord Jesus loving people across the spectrum. And so we want to be as followers of Christ, those who seek to serve and love even those who are different. We want to love men and women, rich and poor, young and old, insiders and outsiders. Jesus has come to call sinners to repentance. He he came into the world to seek and to save the lost. He came into the world to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I love in this passage, don't we have this beautiful picture in this passage of what salvation means, don't we? So Jesus doesn't just give assistance. Jesus, as it were, raises the dead. We, we don't simply need some instruction. If you talk to your, your, your Muslim friends, we need a prophet to tell us what to do. The Lord Jesus is more than a prophet because we don't simply need instructions We need resurrection. We need to be born again. We need more than just laws on tablets of stone. We need new hearts. And only he can give life to the dead. And that's what he does in the gospel. We are utterly helpless. We're utterly hopeless. We're utterly unable to contribute anything to salvation except the sin that requires it. But our Savior is greater than our sins. And death is no match for his touch. One theologian wrote this, quote, The gospel reveals the wonderful love of God the Father to poor and miserable sinners. In giving us Christ, not only to love them while he was in the world, but to love them to the end of the world. And all this love is bestowed on us. Listen, when we were wanderers, outcasts, guilty and even God's enemies. The gospel reveals the love of God like nothing else. And so friend, Christian, do you you understand that God loved you when you were unlovable? And he calls us 
as his people to respond to his love by loving our neighbors. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. The Christian gospel reveals to us who God is and who we are. We've all rebelled against him. We have done whatever we wanted to do instead of what our maker commands us to do. We have not loved him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We've done whatever we wanted to do. And we receive from God. We receive from God. We take from God. He gives us life and breath and everything. And we turn our backs on him. That's what the Bible calls sin. And we all deserve to be cast out as outcasts. But in his love, he sent forth his son, the son of his love, to live in our place, to die as our propitiation on the cross. And he rose again on the third day, never to die again. And for all who receive the Lord Jesus Christ in the empty hands of faith, he gives us forgiveness of sins. He cleanses us, but then he also gives us a new name. He calls us son. He calls us daughter. And no matter whatever shame we have this morning, whatever secrets that we have, he can say that you can come to him. And he will receive you. And he will forgive you. So friend, if you, know the, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you want to trust him today, you can trust him. Turn from your sins and to trust in him. If you have questions about that, I'll be, after the service, I'll be back there after, out front. And I'll also be at the potluck. I'd love to talk with you about what it means to trust Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, let me ask you, Who has God brought into your life where right now you are hesitant to love? Who's the tough person in your life that's hard to love? And ask God today to change your heart and to give you the desires to serve and to love that person, even this week. Two more quickly and we'll be done. Jesus, not only by his grace, helps us to love others. By his grace, Jesus gives us a model for faith. It's always helpful to have a model to follow. When you're talking about doing something, I need a model. I need instruction. I need someone I can look at. I can say, that's how you do it. Especially with home projects. I could not do anything without YouTube. I still can barely do anything around the home. But Jesus in this passage gives us a model of what faith looks like. Saving faith. Now, who is the person at the center of this passage that Luke is holding out as a model of faith? I wonder if you noticed it. I take that this poor woman who's healed is the model of faith. I take it to mean that's this is precisely why in his providence, He heals her before he goes on to Jairus' house. That's why Jesus paused. Jesus knew that this woman was about to die, the daughter. And so Jesus pauses and confronts this woman who testifies about his power publicly. And who's standing there listening to all of it? Jairus. Which is why he says to him, don't fear, only believe. 
and all will be well, just like it was for this woman. He's giving Jairus a public demonstration of his power right before he's going to be asked to trust. And so Jesus shows that this woman pursues Jesus by faith. She touches Jesus by faith. She steps out by faith. She testifies publicly by faith. And she says to the whole world, whatever, whatever is impossible for man is, po- is possible for this man, the son of man. And so we've got in this woman, we have a, an unlikely model of what it means to trust the Lord, even in impossible situations. Thirdly and finally, we'll be done. By his holiness, Jesus makes unclean sinners clean. You probably noticed this as we went through it. This is really a passage. You could summarize it this way. It's a tale of two touches. A tale of two touches. You notice that? Twice in this passage, in this passage, we see that a touch, according to the Old Testament law, ought to render Jesus ceremonially unclean. Who does he? T- who t- so first one, someone touches Jesus who's unclean, and then Jesus touches a corpse which would also make the average person unclean. But what we find is that this unclean woman who is defiled when she touches Jesus and when Jesus touches this unclean corpse, instead of making him unclean, Jesus sanctifies that which is unclean. He's the Holy One of Israel. There's a reason we began the service with holy, holy, holy. Just like when Jesus touched the leper, Jesus is able to do, listen, what the Old Testament law is powerless to do. The law points out that you're unclean and it does nothing to change the fact that you're unclean. The law points out the problem, but the law is powerless to fix it. But Jesus has done what the law cannot do. It's just a reminder, brothers and sisters, we need more than law. We need a savior. And the Lord has given us this perfect savior. So Luke records this this day in the life of the Lord Jesus. This this is one of many days. I love at the end of John's gospel, we're told that if everything that Jesus did had been written down, there wouldn't be enough room in the whole world for all the books that could be written. So we ask Okay, we see what happens on this day, but Luke's going to tell us later in his gospel about another day. Another day. Christ's heart towards sinners hasn't changed. He's still the same yesterday, today, and forever. And later in his gospel, we're going to read about a day when Jesus himself was touched by death. A day when Jesus himself became an outcast. A day when Jesus himself suffered alone outside the camp. A day when Jesus was deemed by others as unclean and defiled. A day when he himself experienced the curse of death. When he hung on that tree. And on that day... When Jesus hung on the cross in our place for our sins, bearing the wrath of God that we deserve, 
you remember what the scoffers said? They laughed at him. They laughed at him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Jesus didn't save himself that day, but he did save others. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. He tasted death for you and for me to bring us to glory. Death touched Jesus, but death could not hold him. He rose again. He ascended to heaven. And he is coming again a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save all those who are waiting for him. If you've placed your faith in this perfect Savior and you've confessed your sins before him, he says that you're not only his child, but you're clean. And so no, whatever you're facing this morning, no matter how impossible things appear, this passage calls all of us to hear the Savior's words. Do not fear. Only believe. And all will be well. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and heavenly father, we pray that you would help us to believe. We, we confess that we do believe, but help our unbelief. Help us to know your love. Help us to rest in your righteousness. And help us to love and serve the perishing. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen.